Good morning. This feels a lot like X Factor, doesn't it? Apart from three judges, there's 200 of you going, show us what you can do. Um, right, so yeah, so, so at the end of the row, you've got a, a 1 Timothy passage, do pick that open. Um, we're finishing a series on contentment. What does it mean to be Christian and be content? Now this letter, Paul, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's this young bishop uh, in Ephesus and he's overseeing a whole host, a number of churches. My wife also told me to let you know that I wave my hands around a lot so you don't get shocked. Like what on earth is he doing? Um, Anyway, so, so the question is, what does it mean to have contentment, to be a Christian and be content. Because throughout the letter, Paul's gone, well, it's all well and good having church structures and church leadership. It's all well and good helping the poor and helping the marginalised. But if Christians aren't actually content with being a Christian, what happens is people come in and they start adding to the faith and they add so much that eventually they fall away. And this is a problem because... At the deepest heart of most of us, we're all following something. There's something that's driving each and every one of us. The Bible calls that an idol. Now, that might be an old-fashioned term, but basically it's talking about the very thing that drives every other part of your existence. And Paul today is taking on the idol of money. I know, my first week, Jago's got me on money. I'm doing sex next week. I'm joking, (laughs) joking, joking. Right, (laughs) right. So so the thing thing with, the thing with, we need to talk about money because that's what the passage talks about. The thing with idolizing money, the thing with having that as the deepest desire of your heart, it's not a two-way relationship. Money never gives itself to you freely. Yes, there's a small group that win the minority, uh, like the lottery, but 99.9% of us have to work, strive, labor for money. And usually to the exclusion of other things. And then it's not like once we've got money that we can be content because we have to continue to earn money. We continue to have to strive and labor and work for money. So we can never have total and utter satisfaction because it never gives back to us. We have to give ourselves to it to receive it. So how do we be content? Well, at the heart of Christianity is putting God first. That's what it means to be content, to put God first. So then the question is, how do I put God above my money and my riches? Because I don't know, you might be like me. I'm very happy to give God most areas of my life, my relationships, my work, sex, all these different things. And then when it comes to money, my body kind of convulses a little bit. He's like, no, 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 not my money, anything but my money. So that's the question. How do we place God above our money? Because it is nice to have money. So let's read, let's read the passage together. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, 18, and 19. And note this, Paul never says Christians shouldn't have money or riches. So let's read what he does say. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So what is Christian contentment? We put God first. How do we put God above our money? This passage provokes two questions that all of us have to answer in our hearts. The first is this, are our riches about this life or the eternal life? Are our riches about this life or the eternal life? Paul tackles money head on. Look with me at that first verse. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain. And when he's talking about uncertainty, he's talking about the present and the future. Ephesus was a lot like London. It seen this kind of huge burst of economic growth. They had huge trade that was happening. But even in that, there was so much uncertainty with the times, with the seasons. But also, there's long-term uncertainty. When we die, we don't take it with us. That's the truth. Now, there's lots of things that we could do with it. We could spend it as quickly as possible. We could put it in offshore banking. We could do a whole host of different things. But we know that the only certainty, it is, it, it is uncertain what will happen to our money. We can't take it with us. And Paul gives this really fascinating response because he's highlighted something practical. Don't put your hope in wealth. So what is the opposite? Because I don't know if you're like me. I want practical advice. Don't put my hope in wealth. Give it to the church. Don't put my hope in wealth, give it to charity. What does he do? Have a look with me at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Hope in God. That's the response. Now, we have to land on hope in God because it's very easy to rush over and move to verse 18. Have a look with me. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, if you you miss hope in God and you jump to verse 18, you move from grace to legalism. If only I give and give and give and give, I will have eternal assurance but one day you won't have anything to give so you'll be in the same position as if you just your whole life revolved around money and so you move from revolving your life around money to revolving to being generous and it's all about generosity what I give what I give what I give what I give you see hoping God that that flips the whole issue on its head it leads us to say this life Now that I follow Christ, this life is not the most important part of my existence. This life is only a prelude to the great and glorious existence that we will experience when we see Christ face to face. And that will happen for eternity. So is our hope in that or just here, this couple of decades that we have? Don't put your hope or build your foundation on money or giving or generosity because it's the same issue. You're doing something. Rather, this is all about God's work. God did something. And we put our hope in that. 
Now, flip round the back. Paul has left a trail for us all the way through the letter. Have a look on the other side. All the way through the letter. And so let's, let's follow this trail so that when Timothy lands on hope in God, he understands it. So firstly, in his introduction, when he's describing himself once again to his old and dear son, Timothy, he says this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst, but for that reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Who am I? I turn to the gospel. Then he goes into church worship, chapter 2, verses 3 and 6. Church worship, what is it about? This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men and women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Church worship, it's about the gospel. Then why do we do what we do? He's talking about church leadership, chapter 4, verses 9 to 9 and 10. This is a trustworthy saying, deserves full acceptance. He likes that phrase. And for this, we labor and strive. This is what we do, that we hope in the living God who is saviour of all men and women, especially those who believe. Why do we do what we do? The gospel. Then he's going to hit social action. Why do we look after the poor? When you read widow, read marginalised and excluded. Chapter 5, verse 5. The widow who is really in need and left alone puts her hope in God and continues day and night to pray and to ask for help. It's the gospel. So then when we get to, flip back over to chapter 6, when we get to wealth and money and riches and being content, and Timothy then reads, but put their hope in God, he goes, it's the gospel. That's, That's what it is. So it's not about this life, it's about the eternal life. So, Our only response to being content is the gospel. It's the eternal perspective and it's given to us and paid for us by Christ on the cross. It's the gospel that we cherish. You see, if your worldview is eternal, then it will undoubtedly, 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 yeah, anyway, that word, it will change how we relate and we feel and we function to money. That's the beauty of the gospel. Having an eternal perspective gives us true contentment because at the heart, our deepest need has been provided for. The assurance of eternal life. And therefore we we can enjoy and we have deep contentment because that need is met because our lives become all about Christ who gave us the eternal insurance that we need. Look with me. Look, look at verse 17. One of the things that comes out of putting your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It doesn't say who richly provides us with all of our desires or all of our needs. With everything that we have, we can enjoy because everything is not about us anymore. It's about him. Because our perspective is not on this life. It's on the eternal life. So what what does Christian contentment look like? Putting God above everything. How do we put God above our money? We move from living about this life to living life in the truth that we have an eternal one coming and it's been purchased for us by Christ on the cross. 
That's the foundation to contentment, starting with the gospel. You see, this passage is not about what car you and I are allowed to drive. This passage is not about whether we should shop at Waitrose or co-op. This, this passage at the very heart is about having an assurance, an eternal assurance. And you know, it's our first week together, so let me be, but for some of us, we've never known that eternal insurance. You hear that and you go, I have no idea what you're talking about, even though I've been coming to church for years. So can I encourage you, grab, grab Jamie or Jago or myself, just, you know, do you, I need to explore this because that's not me. I don't quite know what it is, but I know that's not me. Let's chat after. So, there we go. Okay, so Christian contentment, putting God above everything. How do we put God above our money? Well, we change our view. Our life is not about this life. It's about the eternal life. And then the second question that is sparked, is your money and our riches about our comforts or our generosity? Look back with me at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. You see, we all have comforts and desires that we want. Yeah, some of those are are, are good things. And if you have riches and you have wealth, then you have an ability to buy them or to purchase them. And yet, if your aim and your existence and your driving force is to give in to those comforts and give in to those desires, there will always be more comforts to have. There'll be always more desires to fulfill and therefore you'll never really be content. You see, for the Christian response to hope in God, to the work of Christ, to eternal assurance is this, verse 18. Command them, remember, after we've put our hope in God, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Generosity. It's always a hard one, isn't it? Talking about generosity. What does that, what does that mean? Well, first of all, as a church, you are incredibly generous. My family and I wouldn't be here without the generosity that you have shown. So, thank you. And for some of you, you hear this and you hear the gospel and you hear eternal life and you go, yeah, that's affected my generosity. I, I, I get it. And for other, others of us, we hear being generous and we go, well, what does that mean? How do I know if I'm being generous? It's a fair question. You see, it was actually easier. This is one of the areas that was easier to live in the Old Testament times. They had something called tithing. Now, in the Old Testament, what God did in love, he drew together a community. And in grace, he gives them this law and it's a way to kind of set themselves apart from everyone else. Everyone knew the parameters of how to live. And one of these things was called the tithe. And it was a principle that you gave 10% of everything you earned back to God. So everyone knew where they stood. The problem is Christians aren't under the law. We're not set apart by being under the law in a community. We're a community who are under Christ. We're in Christ and that's what makes us a community. So how do we know how to be generous? Well, let's see the logic of the passage. The response to 
idolizing money is not idolizing generosity. The hope to idolizing money is hope in God, the gospel. It's that song, isn't it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so we go to another passage. We're not just plucking passages out of the Bible. We're going to a letter that Paul and Timothy were there together as it was being written. Philippians chapter 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So Paul wrote this other letter. Timothy's there with him, so he knows exactly what's about to come. Have a look with me. It's on the back of your sheet. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God, Christ, who had everything gave up everything to become a man and then he sunk even lower by dying and then he sunk even lower by shaming himself by standing and being nailed to a cross naked he gave up everything and that's the, that's the symbol, isn't it? The symbol of our faith is the cross. That's why over the next four or five weeks, we're going to start scratching the surface in the run-up to Easter about what actually happened on that day 2,000 years ago. Because that act changes everything. Now, as a response, does that mean that you and I are meant to give up everything for Christ? No. No, that's not what it means what it means is as a response to Christ being more generous than you and I could ever be we are generous it's a response it's not a it's not a kind of within the parameters it's a response it's the beauty of the gospel we have eternal insurance not through our generosity but his and he was so generous he gave up everything so what does christian contentment look like it's putting god above everything how do we put god above our money well our life is built on eternal assurance and that comes from hope in god the work of christ and we respond to that great act of generosity by being generous ourselves so I think there's, there's, there's kind of three ways that you can hear this. The first is, like I said, you, you've never had that eternal assurance. Never. Now, maybe you want to go, well, I need to explore this. Well, I think on the Connect card, you can sign up for the next Alpha course. be great to have you just to explore it because you're like, I I'm, I'm, don't think I'm there. Or you know and suddenly the light's gone on. I have to follow Christ. I know I've never done it. I know I've never made the decision. I know I don't have eternal insurance. Well, maybe today, maybe in, as you respond in our worship, that you respond by turning 
to Christ. Two, you know the gospel. You understand it. But actually, you've never gone, the gospel is meant to challenge what I do with my money. And can I encourage you, like, like we do as a family, to pray. What does it look like in my situation, in my circumstances, how I'm meant to respond to the gospel? And third, you already get this. So be encouraged. May you continue to delight in what Christ has done for you and what we all get to do as we respond to that. So I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, We're going to respond with sung worship as a kind of time to reflect and to think. So um, if I could invite you to stand, uh, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and glorious, all-satisfying work on the cross. We thank you that our money and our riches are not a burden. We thank you that our contentment is not found in what we do or what we can do or what we should do, but in what you have done. And I pray for those of us who really struggle with that. I pray for those of us who have allowed God into some areas, but not all areas of our life, especially our money. Would you help us to swing wide our hearts, our minds, our souls to being transformed by the gospel? Heavenly Father, would you have all the glory? We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.